1: Yay! Hello. Come on. <laughs> so hello and welcome to our very first live episode of the Rabbit Hole Detectives at the beautiful Royal Theatre in Northampton. Yay! Yay! <laughs> this is a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles. That's one. and that's this one, I'm Charles Spencer, chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we possibly can about a particular subject, to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice normally pronounces a winner. But this week, because we have a live audience, they are going to choose for us. <laughs> 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 Fine. So, hello, rabbit toilets. Hello,
2: cat. Hello, cat.
1: Everyone excited?
2: Well, it's thrilling, actually. I mean, it's particularly for Richard and me to be in home territory, and no, it's great. And. I know what the topics are because they were announced last week. We've all gone Northampton-ish, but not Northampton mad.
3: I think it would be a very good idea.
1: Should we just get going? Uh,
2: Yes, do you want to kick me off?
1: Yes, so you're going to be starting this week, uh, Charles, and you're going to be talking about Thomas Beckett, and you have to explain the Northampton link.
2: Well, if you go past Halfords on the way out (laughs) of
3: Northampton,
2: (laughs) uh, opposite is the Thomas Beckett pub. (laughs) And that is not just a random name from the past, but the name of a man very much associated with this town. But I want to actually spread, so uh, as normal, go down a lot of rabbit holes, a lot of different directions. And I'm going to kick off with a, a year that's very familiar to me, which is 1120. And that was the year when the white ship sank, the Titanic of the Middle Ages. And essentially, half the royal family the great administrators, generals, courtiers of England, all went down in a tragic shipping accident off the Normandy coast in 1120. I suppose it led very soon, actually, to the end of the Norman dynasty and the start of the Plantagenets. And the Plantagenets then ended up ruling England from the middle of the 12th century until Henry VII took over, the Tudors took over in 1485. So it was a bit of a, a shipwreck with fatal results. But at the same time, 1120 is when Thomas Beckett is born. And he was the serious problem for the first Plantagenet. And that is Henry II. Henry II, I want to set the scene. I mean, the Plantagenets were known for having a bit of a temper. And Henry II was believed to be descended from the daughter of the devil, because <laughs> his was particularly bad. My DNA was bad.
3: <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> and. Basically, he he was this incredibly restless, energetic figure. And people used to see him hardly ever sit down at all. Just, you know, even when he was doing his uh, religious services, sitting there, he'd be weaving the holes out of hunting garments or his soldier's gear. He couldn't just sit still. And there's even a story about when somebody complimented William the Lion, who was King of Scotland, Henry II was so angry that he ripped his bedclothes and ate the contents of his mattress. Mm. <laughs> so this is a man with a shortish fuse. And that's <laughs> really where it comes into the Beckett thing. It's not just a, a gratuitous rabbit hole. And Thomas Beckett was a fairly sort of humble a merchant stock born in Cheapside in London. His father was a sheriff of, of London But he had real ability, and he shot up the sort of administrative center of Henry II's court and became eventually chancellor, basically the equivalent of a prime minister, running the place for Henry. And Henry and him got on very well. They were both quite laddish. They enjoyed hunting and cavorting and all sorts of things. And Henry thought, well, this is the perfect man to be Archbishop of Canterbury. (laughs) So he made him the primate of all England. And then, to total astonishment to Henry II, Thomas Becket became religious. This was not expected or required. It's Um, not really part of the job. Not really.
3: (laughs) But he went native.
2: Well, yes. You see, Henry II's plan was, there was a lot of tension between the crown and the church back then. And Henry II wanted to sort that out and make sure that the crown was in charge. And when Thomas Becket became a very difficult archbishop, he was summoned to Northampton. There used to be a very important medieval castle here uh, where the station is now, the railway station. In fact, that used to be called Northampton Castle Station, as some of you will know. All sorts of problems when they met. They decided to meet outside the town on what is now called Beckett's Park. And they were each on a horse and the horses didn't like each other. They reared up. And it was a very complicated, shouty conversation for an hour where they decided they didn't like each other. And then after that... We have this trial in Northampton of Beckett and it becomes very clear that Henry II has famously lost his temper and has decided that his friend who's betrayed him is going to have to pay with his life. Beckett flees, goes to France, gets the Pope on side and then in 1170 comes back in a sort of surprise move really and there is this moment, I bet you know the, the famous quote that is meant to be attached to this. Where it's Hen- the tip of my tongue. Henry the- <laughs> well, Henry II...
3: Well, there's a dispute about this, isn't Yes, it? there is. It's a troublesome or upstart.
2: Henry II is meant to have said, he's meant to have summoned his court and said, Beckett's back. That bit's me improvising. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the famous quote is, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? He didn't actually say that. We know from the accounts. What's interesting about this whole episode with Beckett is how many accounts there were because, spoiler alert, he's going to die. <laughs> after, his, after his death, there were uh, 20 biographies written about him straight away. And essentially, you end up with this, well, a uh, challenge to if you want to be in favor with the angry Henry II, you have to do something about it. And four knights go to Canterbury and find Beckett there. And one of the knights holds everyone away from what's going to happen. And the other three kill Beckett. And he dies not only as a sort of martyr to the church, but also incredibly bravely. He, he kneels down and accepts what's about to happen to Charles, him.
3: Charles, people who live this podcast will expect you to go into much more gory detail. <laughs> yes. that's yeah. a
1: mild version, come on. So talk, <laughs> us,
3: through, talk <laughs> us through the end of Beckett.
1: Because
2: <laughs> well, I can, can. I can. Vivid a, account. Well, think. there is a vivid account. The first... Stroke took the top of his head off, and he was still talking. So it was uh, very unfortunate. And um, <laughs> it only got worse, actually. Uh, and it, uh, actually, somebody hit him so hard with their sword that it broke. So you have to think, goodness, that must have been quite painful. And. Uh, <laughs> So he then dies, and the monks, I know you won't believe this, Richard, being a man of the cloth, but the monks think we can make money out of this. <laughs> and they mix his blood in water and sell it in little bottles to pilgrims. And very quickly, there's this cult of Saint Thomas. Within two and a half years, very quick for a canonization, uh, Thomas Beckett becomes a saint. Because, it's
3: yeah. Interesting discussion there would have been at the point at which the community realised that they could monetize this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because the, 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 the doctrine of relics is is that one atom is all you need for the full sanctity of the venerated person to inhere. So you could dilute and dilute and dilute and dilute. Oh, and yeah, imagine... no, the,
1: the
2: good monks of Canterbury, they they went for it. And they <laughs> they even venerated the broken sword, which I think is not really That's... the point, is it? What about, so the, to speak. The, <laughs> what about
1: the knights? What happened to them? Do we know about them? Oh, the
2: knights, yes. So... There were four of them. The lead one was a man called Fitz Erse. They thought they'd done a great thing and they were going to be rewarded. It became quite clear very early on that the Pope was very angry and all sorts of people really thought that this was beyond the pale to kill the Archbishop of Canterbury in his cathedral. So they went and waited to see what would happen. They waited for a year in Naresborough. The 12th century was a slowish century. <laughs> um, so they waited for a year and then they asked what were they meant to do? Henry, by this stage, completely backtracks, sort of pretending he hadn't had anything to do with it, disinherited all their sons, which was a big deal in, in medieval knighthood circles. And they eventually went to the Pope and asked for forgiveness. And the Pope said, well, the only way you're going to earn forgiveness is go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And all we know is that They did go there, but they they seem to all have perished either on the way to Jerusalem or when they got there.
3: Don't mess with the Archbishop of Canterbury.
2: And then Henry II realised he still had to do something. He fell out with his family very badly. His wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, she sided with three of her sons against him just three years after Becket's death. He imprisoned her for 16 years. I mean, these medieval kings weren't really for messing around. So he put her in a prison. He was losing his war against his sons, And he went to Canterbury, walked barefoot through the city and pleaded for forgiveness. And the next day he won this stunning battle. And he, after that, took Thomas Beckett as his talisman, his protector.
3: So many questions. There's something very narratively shaped about all this isn't it so the ambiguity of what the king says will nobody rid me of this troublesome priest not saying go and kill thomas but kind of over to you see would you come mm. up with that Them meeting sticky ends on their crusades the reconciliation of henry and the sort of adoption of thomas it does sound like a bit of statecraft doesn't it
2: well he definitely had run out of patience with him he, we know he had wanted to kill him when he was on trial in northampton but do you
3: know what i think I think it's a bromance that went bad. <laughs> I don't, I mean, this may be say more about me than it does about Beckett. And yes, <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you read the accounts, there does seem to be something... That encounter outside the walls of Northampton, fascinating, because you'd think, you're not going to stand up to the power of the king for the goodness' sake. there's something about Beckett which gives him confidence and poise and a challenge in that which suggests that there is more than one register to their relationship. It's not simply subject to king, it's their peers. Do you think? I
2: don't really, but I think... <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't, but I think it's to do with a man suddenly finding his vocation. And I think he really passionately believed in Christianity. But I think probably from Henry's point of view, how disappointing, you know, he said, I raised him from the dust and made him the most powerful man in the land. And this is how he actually said, he's kicked me in the teeth.
3: But you see, that's emotionally charged, isn't it? This is not yes. just people having a fight at work, is it? There's personal, personal investment. Yeah. Do you think that's right? Or is this an ahistorical perspective? It
1: depends, because it depends a lot on the sources. I'm not that saying the boyfriend. <laughs> no, they might have been. There's more about Maybe that's more the, the sources describing them. And because it's become such an important tale...
3: Becomes sort of relatable. Yeah. Because that kind of soap opera thing about a friendship that was strong, the unexpected rise to power. Well, it's one. Wolf
2: Hall again, isn't it? You know, it's Henry VIII. And actually, so my favorite fact about this is is it Thomas Beckett or Thomas Abbeckett? And I, I didn't know until researching for this, but Thomas Abeckett was an insult. So essentially, the Protestants hated this very powerful Catholic martyr, and they had to besmirch his name. So we have Henry VIII ordering a desecration of his bones, because you can't encourage Catholics to stand up against the king. You have to actually discourage them. And then in the late 16th century, so in Elizabethan times, a man called Thomas Nash, who was a satirist, he started to call him Abecket because he was trying to make him as unimportant as some of Sha- uh, the, the Robin Hood, I was about to say Shakespeare, Robin Hood and Shakespeare, not the same. <laughs> uh, Robin Hood characters, uh, Alan Dale and the What's It, a Green. So, our uh, Beckett was like, he's almost a mythical nonsense figure. So, it was a, it was a conscious way of taking down a Catholic martyr.
3: And because also the power of the throne needs to be not only acknowledged, but displayed, doesn't it? So challenging, and that's built into it because the power of the papacy, the claims you'd have to the kingdom beyond this world is always gonna conflict with the kingdom of this world, right?
2: Well, I think that's true, but the the, the global impact- I think
3: you've not really gone into the bromance
2: angle. (laughs) No, that's (laughs) the more interesting one, isn't it? But the, the impact, global impact of this was so huge. Well, certainly across Europe, this tale of a king killing a man who was standing up for ecclesiastical rights was resonated, and in fact, Kat, in in northern Sweden, you know, at the time when they were building a font in a particular town in Sweden, they had the scene, and they actually have Henry ordering the death of Thomas Beckett. So it really was a, an unbelievably dramatic event,
3: and he was a hugely, I mean, he was a saint whose glory and renown was venerated all over Christmas with very significant scenes and the shrine of Thomas Beckett at Canterbury was one of the most splendid there's a famous account of Erasmus going to visit it mm. just thought I'd get that in <laughs> might not be a professional historian but I've done that. So is that <laughs> where he
1: was most popular or is he one of those because some of the saints become very popular in a very bizarre location don't they? Well
3: absolutely well if you think
2: Chaucer's the pilgrimage is to go. It's the pilgrimage of Chaucer's tales. Is to go and pay your respects to Thomas Beckett's a tomb. Holy blissful mm.
3: martyr, mm. and there is a church dedicated to him now in Sicily. So I think his fame spread far away. And also, if you're the church, if you're the papacy, anyone of your archbishops who stands up to royal power, there's something in that that might serve your needs, right? Yes. Yeah. What about the bromance, though, oh yeah. <laughs> child? I wish I'd had time to prepare
2: something yes. to titillate the vicar. Maybe this
1: needs a book.
3: It's the Hollywood version,
2: isn't
1: yeah. it? See,
3: I'm not... You're a professional, you're a professional. I'm just a pond skater on the meniscus of <laughs> culture. So I'm looking for the... I'm looking for the kind of Hollywood... The Hollywood end. moment.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, it was The Lion in Winter. It was based on that, wasn't it? Yeah. And Beckett, of course. So, yeah, it's it's had its moments.
3: But you have it also, don't you, in the relationship between Thomas More and Henry VIII or Thomas Cromwell yeah. and Henry VIII. Again, it's...
2: Over-mighty servants.
3: And yet they sort of need them, don't they? And then they kill them, don't they? Yeah. Fear, yeah, we well, don't get too near to the sun, right? It's true. So that Very concludes. good. It's an effort. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was yes. any good, but... I, did well, my best it's a very
2: good start <laughs> thank you
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
1: Right, so me next, and I was going to talk about, I thought I'd go Northampton here, with somebody who probably actually not enough people know enough about. There's a woman called Elf Gifu of Northampton. How does a woman from Northampton about a thousand years ago become actually queen of two countries and also the mother of two kings. I don't know. And then you haven't heard of her.
3: Do you know, I'm embarrassed to say, Northampton born and bred, I haven't heard of her. I but haven't do, heard of has her. Has she got like an anglicized version of that name?
1: That is her anglicized version of name. <laughs> <laughs>
3: what's, what's
1: not this is a Scandinavian version, which is Alviva. So that's a little clue to what happens to her. So do what do you think? So obviously she's queen of England at one point. Other country? What might it be? (laughs) Yes. So she is from um, a very wealthy, very powerful family. They actually come from a little bit further north originally. So we don't quite know when the Northampton link comes in and when she becomes called this. Her father was at the court of uh, Ethelred the Unready. And um, he was very popular for a while until he did something and got murdered by the king. Her brothers were blinded. This is your territory of gruesomeness, I think. Um, But she was absolutely fine. And then eventually, in 1013, the famous event of that year, which is the invasion by Swain Forkbeard of Denmark. So he he successfully becomes king of England. With him is a young, handsome man called Knut. Oh. Yes. And he needs a wife. So... Swain decides to find someone who's got a lot of power and settles on Elfgifu. So Knut and Elfgifu marry, political marriage really, but Swain dies soon afterwards and they have to go back to Denmark. So the story in England sort of continues for a little bit until Knut himself decides to invade and conquer England. So 1016, he's successful and he wins England and becomes king actually for almost 20 years.
2: Can I just say, that is always so surprising, isn't it? Because we think, most English people think, oh, we were defeated in 1066, not 1016. And It's so odd that we have that huge invasion and we don't even remember it. It's so called
1: the neglected conquest. Because but, I, but
3: why yeah. do we remember the Norman conquest as the definitive one rather than that? Because it lasted, I suppose.
1: Well, I suppose it did and it had more permanent changes, but this one was actually a really successful, quite relatively peaceful one as well, which is quite an interesting one. Reasonably. Boring. Well, <laughs> except maybe that was it. Too boring. But by 12, Gifu So, she. this is quite good for a while. They have two children. They've got uh, a son called Swain and a son called Harold, later to be known as Harold Herefit, which is possibly more familiar. But then, when Knut uh, realizes he needs a bit more power, he needs a bit more support, he decides he's got to make a clever move. So he actually divorces Ilfgifu, and instead he decides to marry his predecessor's widow, Emma of Normandy, who was married to Ethelred the Unready. Ethelred <laughs> and Emma had several children, and they were all contenders to the throne, and this becomes a big, big issue. So Elfgifu sort of disappears for a little while. Until later on, he also becomes king of Denmark. His brother was uh, king of Denmark until 1018. He becomes the king of Denmark. And then the Norwegians and the Swedes decide to try and attack Denmark, which is a really bad idea. They didn't do a very good job of it. So Knut goes, right, okay, and sends a big fleet to Norway to essentially try and take Norway as well.
3: When we say big fleet in this period, what do we mean in terms of so numbers? So it's 50 ships. 50 ships. So, so how 50 many
1: large Viking ships? And how really? many fighting men could you get on them? They normally have about 60 pairs of oars, okay. so you have 60 people rowing it. Probably fit a few more on there. So we're talking a quite good sizable yeah. number. But actually, in fact, they are so 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 powerful that the Norwegians just go, okay, fine, <laughs> you can have it, and the, the king flees puts a man in charge who, who dies quite soon afterwards, then he's a bit stuck. He needs someone he can trust to take on this country, so he decides to put his son Swain on the throne.: it's
3: his forkbeard.:
1: He uses forkbeard's grandson. Got it.: Now,
2: there's going to be a test on the family tree. <laughs> yes.
1: I'm going to want some family trees drawn and actually with all the names properly spelled. The problem is that Swain is 15, so to send a 15-year-old on his own to rule a foreign country where everyone hates him is mm. not a great idea. So what do you do? Well, you send his mother. So that's when Elf Kifu comes along. Uh, I see. So she is sent to Norway and essentially becomes queen because Swain, for some reason, seems to be really useless. He doesn't really do anything. And um, she rules the country for four years Very unpopular in all the records. Everyone has a lot of bad things to say about her. Apparently, she was very, there was very heavy taxation. They complain, a sort of cost of living crisis, basically, in Elfgifers' time. So people have to eat, apparently, animal fodder and and all of that. But um, for four years, they're quite successful. So she manages to rule with her
3: son you don't always get a break do you i mean if you're ruling in a time of plenty and peace then that's kind of read into your reign isn't it whereas sometimes it's tougher
2: the the whole idea at this time was to give your people peace wasn't it you would subscribe to a really quite vicious leader as long as you were left alone that was the idea
1: i think that's definitely a big part of it and and also we don't know what's happened There could be environmental problems, climate issues, anything like that could happen as well. But actually, I think a lot of Islam, if you look at all the sources, Elf has got a really bad reputation wherever she goes, really, because it's, it's always the enemies. There's always somebody else writing about her. So that's kind of all we know. So she's called, she's in the sagas, Icelandic sagas as Alviva, this, um, this Scandinavian uh, version of her name.
3: I've got a question. Yes. The Normans were Vikings, right?
1: They were. <laughs> Through, and also Emma, so Emma of Normandy has got a big link. So William the so she was the great aunt or great great aunt. I can't remember of William the Conqueror. So he actually uses Emma as his link. Part of his claim to taking England because he's got somebody who was the queen. So
3: basically true. everything is Vikings.
1: That's because they were Vikings. Yes, the <laughs> was literally the Northmen. So. Well,
3: that's so interesting, isn't it? Because we think of them, don't we? And in, in, in an English historical imagination, we think of the French as our eternal enemy. And we associate that with a kind of fairly modern yeah. idea of what Frenchness is, but they were actually Vikings.
1: Yes, and Emma spoke Danish as well because she'd grown up. She had a Danish mother, so again, she Here's
0: spoke the, my question. language.
3: So the Vikings get everywhere as far as America, right? Yeah. They conquer everywhere. London was a Viking city. Yes, it Why? was. And all this kind of stuff. Why? Was it the search? Was it because their natural resources are insufficient? Is there something in their culture that makes conquest irresistible? I don't know?
1: We, that's one of the, the million-pound questions, really. We don't quite know. It seems to be a combination of that. So there's there is, there's lots of pressures at home, not enough land, not enough food, all of that. There's all these pools as well as riches everywhere. But it seems to be very much a mentality of, of exploring, of going places, and that gets social value back home as well so to have been almost like going I see these sort of Viking bands as as these young men going on a gap year trip basically. It was a home. gap
2: year with rape and pillage <laughs> <Yeah>. isn't it?
1: There <laughs> all the rage in the yes. age <laughs> 50. It? It Closest in the ship. But it
3: just seems because you obviously have that heritage I mean you're physically charged you've got that and and because Northamptonshire was, didn't the line of the Dane. It's
2: straight Dane, through here, wasn't yeah. it?
1: It's very near, but you're right on the edge here, so they, they kind of pushed out. But that's,
2: I mean, Northamptonshire is one of the rare counties where you get a lot of Anglo Saxon and a lot of Viking names in one
3: area, because
2: usually it was cut in two, wasn't it?
1: Yeah.
3: We'll never know, will we? 89% Kettering, right? Again, yeah, no, well, no Viking. Nothing at well, same. unless
2: that
1: includes the Viking, so that's done.
3: Don't think so. It would show up, wouldn't it? I get it? They show you a little map. Scan, yeah, they compare it to kind of blobs. Oh, mine's yeah. just got one intense blob, literally, on, on Wicksteed Park, essentially. <laughs> Going
2: back back to the
1: dinosaurs. (laughs) So before we move on, I think we've got our disembodied voice. I feel like the disembodied voice has a comment for us. Indeed, just because I'm not declaring the winner this week doesn't mean I'm not always listening. So (laughs) I have a couple of things to add. The first is, yes, Emma of Normandy was the great aunt of William the Conqueror. That was correct. Also, uh, accounts of Henry II uh, claiming Beckett was... A turbulent priest as well as troublesome. Some people might be more familiar with that, though again, it's likely he didn't say this at all. And before we get into Richard's section, I will vouch for the other rabbit hole is that he will try and butter up the decision makers. (laughs) So watch yourselves.
2: It's shameless, isn't it, really? (laughs) Give the people what they
3: want, Charles. Is it me now?
1: It is you, and you're definitely keeping it local. Thank Thank you.
0: podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com
1: so you're keeping it local as well because you've been doing your homework researching the northamptonshire boot and shoe industry.
3: Indeed I have. Whoa. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> step with me in your beautifully <laughs> shod feet, out of the Royal, turn right up the Guildhall, turn right again down the Dango, head down the road. What do you get on the southern side of the street? The Barrett Maternity Home. Put up your hand folks if you were born in the Barrett. <laughs> there you go. The Barrett Maternity Home. Now you probably don't know. No. You weren't born in
2: Northamptonshire. No, my sister Sarah was born in the Barrett. The Barrett.
3: So the Barrett Maternity Home was the gift to Northamptonshire and the town by William Barrett, who was one of the great shoe barons of his day. Typically of the shoe barons of his day, he was not only an extraordinarily energetic and enterprising person, but he was also actually very much committed to the common wheel, as it were, and to bringing benefits that he made through industry, sharing the fruits of that with the county in a maternity home in an era of high mortality. And mortality was a very important thing, so lots of us were born there. But what is shoemaking and bootmaking doing in Northamptonshire? How far back do we have to go? well, we can go back to the Middle Ages, around your period, when we know that there were cordwainers who were in Northampton, so cordwainers, shoemakers, comes from Cordoba, they think, which is a source of, of leather. But the reason why the industry got so settled in this part of the world was threefold. The River Nen, not Ni. LAUGHTER <laughs> The river Nen, which waters Northamptonshire. If you live in Jimmy's End, you'll know what it means to be watered by by the Nen, that's for sure. So there's plentiful water, plentiful oak forest, because the essential ingredient is really oak bark, which was used in tanning. And because of its richly fertile valley, cattle too, for the production of hide. So you have all the raw materials there. Northampton, very important city in the Middle Ages, or town, rather, in the Middle Ages. And so industry concentrates there. And so it gets a kind of foothold. And then you see that begin to gain force as we step through Step with me, <laughs> if you will, to the English Civil War. Because this is one of your periods, Charles. But if you do, if you were to step with me in the English Civil War, if you were for Cromwell, you were probably wearing a pair of boots or shoes that were made in Northampton and Northamptonshire. 6,000 pairs we know were made for Cromwell and indeed the new model army in this county. Step with me, if you will, <laughs> along the towpath of the Grand Union Canals. The canals arrived in Northamptonshire, 1815, around then. So that opened up Northamptonshire, central England, very well placed for trade connected to all sorts of other places that's happening too and it all gets very exciting in the 19th century in the 1830s shoes were being made in their tens of thousands literally their tens of thousands in this very town but it was really industrialization that changed all that process and that happened due to one of my own ancestors in fact my great 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 grandfather was a silk weaver from a little village called Desborough not very far from Kettering my well, little shout out for Desborough there but <laughs> <laughs> He was very typical of time, he was a Victorian, he was born in the 1830s, he was obviously handy, he caught that rising tide of industrialization, non-conformist religion, he was a Baptist, and also liberal politics. So there was huge social changes happening, and that was energising this newly emerging class of people who had a bit of vision and determination and grit. And he was an inventor. He became a clock repairer. He became a clock maker. And then he invented machines. And some of those machines were part of the either invented or refined machines that were turned shoemaking into an industrial process. Some really key things came up. Isaac Singer, of course, invented the sewing machine. The sewing machine arrived in Northamptonshire in the 19th century, and there were adaptations of that that made it adaptable to be able to sew the leather pieces of a shoe. The construction of a shoe is a complicated... I don't know why I'm telling you this, Cat, but the construction is a complicated (laughs) thing. There are all sorts of different processes involved in it, and I'm sure there are people here in the audience tonight who either worked in the shoe trade or had family who were in the shoe trade who worked in the shoe factories that began to proliferate in this time and would know what a skiver was, or a closer was, or a clicker was. When I was born in the Barrett Maternity Home, March the 26th, 1962, do you know what the midwife said to my mother? No. She said, oh, Mrs. Coles has got clickers hands. And do you know what a clicker is? I
1: <laughs> have no clue. A
3: clicker was the highest paid job in the shoe factory. It's considered to be the most skilled. The clicker's job was to cut out from a hide the leather shapes that were stitched together to make the upper of a shoe. And as experienced, it's called clickers, these things called clicker knives, which are these round-handled knives with a very curved, sharp blade. And there'd be a template and you would cut round that. And a good clicker, you'd end up with what looked like a piece of lace, actually, because they'd so skillfully got as much... Shoe as they could out of the hide, later replaced by the clicking presses. And I can remember those, these kind of big steam presses. And you put these things like pastry cutters on the hide, and you'd have to press these two buttons. Why would you have to press two buttons in order to depress the clicker press? Because if you still had your hand in it. Oh, Charles, that's very I good. just needed a bit of gore here for Charles. Yes, no, yes. thank you. So um, that wasn't so the shoe factories. Well, yeah, and so the shoe factories began to develop, that's And the industry, and they produced some extraordinary people. Barrett of Barrett's return to was William Barrett, and he was one of the town's most pioneering and most indicted, he started off working in a shoe shop. Actually, he was from Northampton, worked in a shoe shop, went to London, learnt a bit, and then started um, production. And I think one of the most, if Northampton were to have a signature building, well, you'd think of Terry Wogan's Northampton Lighthouse, wouldn't you? The lift testing um, thing. But actually, I would say the Barrett factory on Kingsthorpe Road, wouldn't you? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It's one of the most famous shoe factories, an extraordinary thing in neo-Baroque. Barrett was not only interested in turning out lots of shoes, he was interested, as so many of those Victorian men of industry and vision were, in improving the lot of people. So the factories were well ventilated, people were paid properly, you got time off. My own family, who developed a, a shoe, a group of shoe companies at that time, I was looking at some photographs the other day. Sorry, Richard, we, what were they called? What
2: was your family, fam?
3: Coles Boot and Shoe. Right. So it was very typical, it was based in Burton Latimer, which mm. is a town... A village really not far from Kettering, and it <coughs> prospered and grew in this period, and there were factories in Kettering and Findon, indeed where I was where I was Vicar. And very typical. You'd so you'd have industrialization, I'm sure lots of people here would be only too familiar with those kind of ribbons of red brick Victorian terraced housing and a factory at the end of every street. Thousands of people. I mean, in Cole's Boot and Shoe Group, we were making I think a million pairs of shoes a year. And what was, what
1: was sort of special about those shoes? Was there anything particular that people were looking for? You remember what
3: countries? Gerald Ratner said about his jewellery? <laughs> <say. laughs> <laughs> I think it would be fair to say that volume production was the aim. Okay. I mean, of course, there were different specialisms as well. For example, so there was volume production in Northampton and Kettering. Long Buckby was riding boots. Wollaston was work boots. Interesting throw forward to perhaps the most well-known brand of any piece of Northampton footwear, Dr Martens, Doc Martens. Oh, work boots were made in Wollaston because that was a you, thing. Do
2: you know about Dr Martens? So I once did a report on Dr Martens for American television and... There were two men who, Dr. Martins, and his colleague decided to toss a coin as to who was it, it was gonna be named after. And they really missed a trick because the other one was Dr. Funks. <laughs> and it's such a better name, you know. Oh, my DM. so, so, yeah. but, nearly.
1: <laughs> but
3: interesting is that Wollaston continued to it was DMs were made in Wollaston until production shifted to the forest. Although there is product I'm happy to the story is one of expansion and then one of fall. So war was an enormous stimulus to production. Mm-hmm. So in the first World War, Northamptonshire I think made twenty-five million pairs of boots for the troops. Enterprising, I mean someone like Barrett himself, although he was very skillful, managed to uh, provide boots for both sides in the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> and also provide boots for the Finnish Army in their fight against Soviet Russians, but the Finns were actually on the side of the Axis powers at the time. so. I think there's a certain canniness about the Northamptonshire shoe manufacturers (laughs) and it produced enormous wealth. We're not very far from the Guildhall here in Northampton. You talk about Northampton's prestige in the Middle Ages and its prestige continued, but it was shoe money that really generated so much of what we see in in the town today. Faded, of course, what happened was in the 1970s and then in the 80s cheap imports, so those boots and shoes that were made in enormous quantities, not perhaps to the highest of standard always, when competition came in from Southern Europe, Italy, Portugal, Spain, Mallorca, interestingly, they came, I remember my father coming home from the shoe factory in the 1970s, and he had a shoe, the MW took out this pair of shoes and they were, they were Spanish, and he said, they're better than we can make them, and they're cheaper than we can make them. And before very long, you know, a county and its towns <laughs> that had been noisy with the sound of industry everyone was employed in the fact they used to have a hooter that went off at seven thirty in the morning to get people to the factory if you worked in burton latimer at colesbrook and you lived in findon you got off 10 minutes early for your dinner so you'd go home at dinner time and have your lots of it was outwork as well i should say so the factories came along a bit later before that lots of outwork, so people would work at home and i think that's kind of interesting because if you look at some of the those kind of heroes of labour in this part of the world they were independently minded people i think that's because they were working in their own back shop so you go and you get your bits you take it home famous in living memory in Findon, of the old boys have a little back shop at the back of their house and sort of women work in it too and they'd have a whole load of tacks in their mouths and they would so it was a sort of cottage industry mm. but all those people eventually started working in factories and in the sort of 60s you could be earning as much as £3.15 and shillings a week. Colesbrook had a ladies' football club, as I said. Factory fortnight in Kettering, there for two weeks, everybody went to Hunstanton. It was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a big thing that they used to print the Kettering Evening Telegraph in Hunstanton <laughs> because everybody was there. And it was an extraordinary thing. And then all of a sudden, it kind of vanished. And I think, like, lots of post-industrial places, the towns of Northamptonshire have sometimes struggled... To find a renewed existence. I have to say, we're doing very well in lots of ways now. And there is actually a return of shoes. I mean, some prestige brands like Trickers, for example, here in Northampton, you'll still get handmade bespoke shoes there by appointment to the King and the late Queen. Shaquille O'Neal, do you know he had some shoes made there? Oh, Colesboot, oh. can I tell you who came to Colesboot we made shoes for? No. Georgie Best. No, well done. really? I was so excited. I was eight years old. It was 1970 and Georgie Best was coming to the factory to have his picture taken and get a pair of shoes. Didn't turn up. No that is disappointing. Do you know who he got instead? Adam Faith.
0: And there's a picture
3: of all the ladies in the factory. And there was a lovely story about, I think it was at Trickers, they got orders from Elvis Presley for literally suede shoes. And all the ladies who worked in the factory, some of the Shops in the factory were traditionally done by women. The closing room, for example, and they all put notes to Elvis saying, "Come and marry me and get me out of Northampton." <laughs> <laughs> to, you
1: know. Do you have any of the Cole's shoes? Have you got any? I've
3: got one pair left, which was made by Cole's Boot in the 1950s, were my father's gardening shoes. In the end, but I've salvaged them and I use them, and they were very. I mean, they. Goodyear welted technology. They were pioneers of technology. The, I think it was the Blake machine was the first machine that sewed up as to insoles and stuff. But then the Goodyear welt came along with American invention, actually, and made very robust pairs. So she said, I'm heading towards a favourite.
1: I was going to say, do you have a favourite fact I us? do
3: have a favourite fact. <laughs> we were talking about how different towns were associated with different kinds of boots and shoes. Rans was particularly associated with army boots, Huge, huge volumes of armies, but there was a. This caused a problem. The Boer War came along, and Rawns <coughs> made thousands and thousands of pairs of boots for the British Army involved. Not only in the Boer War, but in all its sort of colonial enterprises around the world. Boer War finished in, was it 1902, 1903? I can't remember. And all of a sudden, they had loads of stock and nowhere to sell it. So that depressed the prices. And there was this enormous industrial uh, sort of labour dispute that happened in Raons because the factory owners, in order to keep going, started offering people poverty wages, basically. And that caused the strike. I think it was about 500 workers went out on strike. Well, there was a famous march to London to plead their cause. This is 1905. But there were, of course, strike breakers. one particular notorious strike breaker in Rawls. well, actually, he lived in Ringstead, which is a village not very far from Rawns. And he would cycle in to Ron's, pick up his bits, take it back to his back shop and knock out boots. He was called George Roberts. And George Roberts decided that he wasn't going to give up his livelihood. He was going to continue to work through these hard times. And he was not going to be cowed by those who were insisting that the strike held. He had a hell of a time of it. His windows were broken. He was constantly threatened. At one point, he had to have 10 police constables escort him as he went to uh, Rawns to pick up his pieces and take it home again. Anyway, the strike was over. But the interesting thing about Mr George Roberts, the great strike-breaker of the Rawns labour. George Roberts had a cousin called Alf Roberts. Alf Roberts lived in Ringstead. It was a big shoemaking family. But Alf Roberts had poor eyesight, so he couldn't get a job in a shoe factory. He wasn't up to it. So he moved away, and he became a grocer in Grantham (laughs) and Alf Roberts had got married and he had two daughters Muriel and Margaret and Margaret Roberts eventually was a bright girl went to grammar school went off to Oxford and she married a man called Dennis Thatcher and she was Margaret Thatcher who perhaps Ah. more than any other figure in our own chunk of history did more to honour if that's the word the memory of her strike-breaking forebear
1: (laughs) George Roberts. (laughs) Excellent. A very good rabbit hole. (laughs) Excellent. Not a rabbit hole I thought we would fall into, but there we go. (laughs) So now, this is usually the part of the show where our disembodied voice declares the winner. But because we have you here, our live audience, we're going to (coughs) ask you at the Royal Theatre to decide. So... Looking up behind on this big screen here, there is a code there that you can scan, or you can look at that link uh, on your smartphone. And by doing so, that will tell you exactly how you can cast your vote. And because this is a bit of a special week, we also have something new, which is a winner's trophy that we have to show you. Here we go. Now, no this is very there. special. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is very special because it's custom made by one of our incredible listeners, Giles. Can I just made hold this? It? Yes, please oh, do. Look well, a bit premature, but it's. Yes. And we have named <laughs> it because
2: it's a rabbit hole detective. We have named him
1: Warren. 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 <laughs> yeah.
2: And each okay. week he'll be given to whoever wins it.
1: Yes, it's like we could take him home and look after Warren for a week. <laughs> Don't kill Warren, that's see, the cue. So?
3: In the old days, of course, you would have, um, if you had stood for Parliament, you could have got all the people who worked on the author of state to vote for you, couldn't you?
2: Yes, there's one of my ancestors who bribed people. There was a very close vote coming up, and so the kitchen staff were sent to the front gate to give people buns, and inside the bun was a shilling Really? For their vote, did yes. it work? It did. I mean, it was very expensive.
3: <laughs>
1: You're telling us this now. <laughs> Obviously, as those of you who listen to the, the show know, we're not competitive at all, so no. it doesn't really matter in the slightest, does it?
3: I mean, it's just a number, isn't it? Or rather, just three numbers. So.
1: Okay. So I think we do now have the final. Yeah, we're all ready for that. Yeah. So the winner is. Richard. Hey. Well done.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> like a bun with a pound coin in waiting for you out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. So I'm the first winner of Warren. You are. Warren. Yes. You are. So you're going to have to look after him
1: by very that. carefully and bring him back to the studio. I'm going to
3: cherish Warren. For a week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to say, I've got, I
3: don't have a massively stocked trophy cupboard, but Warren is going to take... A mantelpiece, I Pride pace. Yeah. See, for a week, do you don't think we get a new, a new one every week? No.
2: no. <laughs> but it does look very fragile, doesn't it? It doesn't look like we should really move it anywhere. Yeah, I mean, it'd be
3: awful if I left it on the train and then would have to have a new train.
1: <laughs> we'll have to see, but well done. Thank Third you very much. Thank you very much. Well, concept. I have to say,
3: I mean, if you look at this in the round, of course, it's a... More complicated story. Is it a win tonight? But actually, mm. over the we're now in season four, aren't we?
1: We are, yeah.
3: And um, I think Charles, you're in the lead at the moment, but we're all all very point, close. Well, we're about a point. You and I are a point apart, I think, aren't we? It's amazing. We don't
2: change. really care, as Richard said. We don't yeah. care. <laughs> no. We are actually the three most spoiled, worst losing people you can meet. So these smiles are entirely false.
1: <laughs> Just I'm furious that Richard won. Yeah. <laughs> Slamming dressing room doors in a minute. Yeah, there'll be lots of <laughs> tantrums
2: during this break. I should say,
3: you're putting me up tonight as well, so maybe I should be a little bit... I was, bit... Yes. I was.
2: <laughs> you're now in the Ibis Hotel. <laughs> I
3: was going to say, is the Saxon still open? <laughs> is the Saxon still open? Not for like 40 years. You know that the, the, the Codion, the French shoemaker, was the first to invent... The difference between a left shoe and a right shoe.
1: Yes, mm. and there was
3: a, that was actually true for production. That yes. was true, and it was in the 1850s that people, when they were mad, the, one of the technological developments in the boot and shoe trade in the 1850s, was the developing of machines that would differentiate between left and right. Because before that, I know this sounds completely mad, but you just had one shoe, and uh, the, two. You had four. two. <laughs> <laughs> No, Charles, you had one shoe and you
1: had to sort of hop along. It, change it over
3: each step, yeah. But there you go. And it was called something like a, um, a cow bag. And you know those portraits of Henry VIII when he's wearing these very sort of like loose baggy shoes? Or well, they were loose and baggy for a reason. They didn't differentiate between right and left.
1: The link to the Romans was that the Romans actually had left and right shoes before that.
3: But that wasn't
2: mass production, no, I think. Yeah. Just,
1: but they had different shoes.
2: Well, you know, I don't know. I want to dispute that. <laughs> <laughs> Good,
3: yeah. Just a thought.
1: We do need to do people who are listening at home and will be listening and only to know. And hopefully you too will want to tune in next week because we've got a new episode to record. So I've got to set you your homework. Richard, can you please go and research the accordion?
3: The accordion, you bet I can. Oh.
1: And Richard, start to select. Or Charles. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, he just keeps winning, so <laughs> more, you know. Oh, that's a bit crushing. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm going to be looking at Amelia Earhart.
3: So we've got Amelia Earhart.
1: Yes. Aviatrix. Yes.
3: What do you do? Cirque du Soleil. Cirque du Soleil. It's Airborne. their 40th
2: anniversary of... Uh,
3: Airborne Entertainment. Yeah. Yes. And the accordion, which is an aerophone. Oh, well, there we very are.
1: Very good link. We've been
3: thinking about how we can enrich our offer to live audiences. Those of you who've been following the podcast will know that Charles is a lifelong devoted Morris dancer.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> and this is my view. Don't you think that that would be good if... I'm not still happening tonight, folks, because I've checked the boot. You can't no do Morris the,
2: dancing by yourself, I don't think. <laughs> And I haven't done it for about 40 years. I did it with the Molten man or something. No. Mummers. Yeah.
3: Yes, thank you. They're all no, here. No, so I'm yeah, not, they're not gonna being rude. Here. I'm not mocking you. Well you it. are, you are. I'm not mocking. you, think I think you should, and of course, um, Kat was telling us about in Norway, it's the custom for grandmothers, mothers, and daughters to make and preserve for each other traditional costume called Bunad, which is particular to your own particular part of Norway. Yeah. And it's a big so I want you to wear your Bunad with your Morris dancing. You and your boonhead and me playing the accordion. Yes. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, there's a, there's a... I think image. on that bombshell. Yes. So We will just have to, to tell everyone what at home what's going to happen as well. So that's the end of the live show. So thank you everyone who's listening on the podcast app. And those of you here at the Royal Theatre. <laughs>